This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 5th, 2020, the President Joe Biden question mark, question mark, question mark edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New York, from maybe the studios of CBS by CBS News's John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hey, David. And from New Haven, from her home office, cozy home office by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hey, David. Ooh, the garbage truck stopped just so I could say hello to you. Oh, how nice. On today's GabFest, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, guess what we're talking about? We're just talking about the election. Well, first topic, we will talk to Nate Persley, the excellent Stanford law professor, about the legal challenges to this election and what may happen with some of the legal issues that have been raised by President Trump and his supporters and how those will play out in the coming months. Then we will talk about why Democrats did so poorly and Republicans did so well down ballot. And should Democrats be delighted if Biden manages to eke out this election or should they be mournful because they did not capture the Senate, they lost seats in the House and they did not do well in state elections either? And why did that happen? And then we'll talk about the polls. Were the polls really wrong? Uh, is polling doomed? What do we make of this quadrennial autopsy and exorcism around polling? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. It is 8.20 Eastern time on Thursday morning. Uh, you know the state we're in. You know better than we do what state we're in with the presidential election. As we're looking at it, Michigan and Wisconsin have been called for Biden Arizona is in an odd limbo. Nevada is in an odd limbo. Pennsylvania is counting very slowly and trending in Biden's direction. And Georgia looks like it's going to be extremely close. Joe Biden, of course, also has a massive margin in the popular vote. But nothing is certain until, well, we will find out when that is, because we're going to talk to Nate personally. Nate, guest on the GabFest a couple of weeks ago. He's, of course, a professor at Stanford Law School. He's also the director of the Healthy Elections Project at Stanford and MIT. He's an expert on the law of elections and what may happen between now and Inauguration Day. Um, so, Nate, how briefly, if, if the voting trends hold and it looks like Biden uh, has enough electoral votes to be president, how does he become president? What obstacles are in the way? from him having the electoral votes on paper to him actually being inaugurated? Well, the first step is to get the certified totals of the vote from um, each jurisdiction, each state. And that is going to take some time. I, I should say the, the first step is to actually 
count the votes, right? We're still in the vote counting process uh, and, and we don't know what those totals are. Then there's going to be a uh, certification phase uh, and then um, there will be potentially recounts once the votes are certified uh, and then potentially you know, legal action at each stage uh, to either contest uh, the count or to contest the recount. Uh, and then once you have the votes counted and then a the Electoral Count Act uh, says that by December 8th, if the processes are, are completed, that those are the presumptive electors for the Electoral College that meet a week later on December 14th. And then on January 6th, the Congress will open, uh, Mike Pence actually presiding over Congress will open the certificates for uh, uh, of the Electoral College slates. And then if there's a if there's a conflict at that point, then Congress is uh, supposed to resolve them. If you hear, I think, a note of perhaps weariness in Nate's voice, it's first of all because I'm sure he's been um, constantly barraged, uh, not only in the weeks leading up to the election when he was one of the people who was intensely involved in making sure that it went smoothly, but also watching what's happening since then. Also, Thursday morning, we're starting to see... um, I'm starting to feel more tense because there have been, you know, all of this uh, rhetoric from President Trump claiming that the results are fraudulent, you know, in this incredibly irresponsible way. And I had been feeling for a day and a half or so that that just wasn't having real impact. But now we're starting to see protests, you know, outside of some of these election centers where votes are being counted. And of course, people have the right to peacefully protest. But the volume is kind of rising. Um, and I don't mean shouting. Shouting is also fine. But I'm starting to just get worried that Trump is fueling what could turn into, you know, a more serious confrontation. But do you guys think I'm exaggerating? Like, is this just one moment in this week that's going to pass? Well, let me just start with I passed tense very long ago. Uh, I And so now, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of uh, just trying to understand all the various, you know, allegations that are being made uh, against the process. Uh, we need to trust the process to actually produce a result as hard as it is and to be patient uh, during this time when patients short supply. Um, but I think that one of the things that makes this election and and this post-election period different than, say, Florida in 2000 is the number of states that are involved, right? It would be one thing if it came down to one state and you could sort of focus your protests and your arguments on that. Right now, at least, we're in a phase where it seems many states are in dispute. We don't know what the final electoral college map is going to look like, but that sort of that creates greater confusion because the arguments and the strategies in different states are different. I will say that, look, I think it's it's too soon to assume that this is going to lead to action, let's say, outside of the courts and, and orderly process, the uh, suggestions of violence and the like. I, I think that, you know, we have ways of dealing with this, but the, and for that matter, that the local jurisdictions are prepared for that. Everybody knew that if this was a close election, that they had to make sure to secure the vote counting process. Nate, when you look at what's happening in the legal arena, in the courts, which you're particularly attuned to, what are the themes in the challenges that have been filed or challenges that appear to be on the verge of being filed? Is there a, is there a theme in the pudding? 
Well, so there, there's several different strategies and many of the uh, complaints that we're seeing now had their seeds that were planted even in the pre-election period. And so there is the general argument that local election officials or secretaries of state have gone beyond the election rules in a state statute. That lays the groundwork for a challenge that under what we call the independent state legislature doctrine, under the pr provision in the constitution, that says uh, state legislatures shall determine the manner of appointing electors. And so if they can make an argument that these local officials went beyond the state statute, that is uh, one kind of argument. Implicit within that and, and sort of adjoined to it is a set of arguments about sort of discrimination and political manipulation, right? You can see this in some of the arguments that were made in Pennsylvania that um, that the, the local officials, the argument goes, are essentially not counting votes honestly, or that they allowed for different types of voters to cure defects in ballots or to cast provisional ballots. And so that that might lead to accusations of fraud. Then you have other sort of arguments that came up in the pre-election period about the counting of ballots after election day that will happen in Pennsylvania, where I guess it's today or within three days after the election that they can count ballots. And the Trump campaign has already said that they're going to sort of re-argue that issue, which has already gone to the US Supreme Court several times. But I, I wanna emphasize that we are in the throw everything at the wall and see what sticks phase of litigation right now, right? Which is to try to just launch as many arguments as possible to see what then, what arguments will then crystallize to be important for the count in any particular area. But we do not have a single issue like we had in 2000 in Florida, you know, so-called dangling chads and the like, right? Right now, we're, there's sort of a scrambling about to, to concretize what might be the arguments about fraud because there is no evidence of fraud that anyone can point to. And so they're using litigation as a way to try to unearth some of that evidence. And Nate, that's that's my question, which is um, distinguishing uh, a legal request that's a uh, an attempt to to um, handle fraud and a legal request that's a plea for help because you're losing. Um, uh, so that's I guess maybe that's not a question, but an opinion. So let me ask you a question, which is when you look at the the day to day people, the secretaries of state, the people who who care about this stuff, um, how do you feel they're doing in terms of just doing the basic processing of the votes in the places that might be the most legally contentious? Well, they're they're doing what we would expect them to do. Uh, and, you know, they were prepared for this possibility. So, for example, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson in Michigan said that Michigan would not have its votes uh, counted until Friday. There are states where and localities where I would like them to, to hurry up a little bit. Nevada, for some reason, uh, Clark County has not felt um, like there's a fire uh, underneath them. Uh, and, and so... Uh, part of the problem here is that some of these states, for example, North Carolina, will be receiving absentee ballots for several more days now. And so that any counts that they would complete right now uh, would need to be adjusted for the late arriving absentee ballots. But I haven't seen any uh, evidence of malfeasance or uh, sort of dereliction of duty on the part of the state or even local election officials. I mean, the other thing to add is that in a couple of these states, especially Pennsylvania, they wanted to start opening the ballots that arrived by mail early before Election Day, which is the law and like totally the, the part of the process in states like Florida and Ohio. 
where they got it all done really quickly. But it was the Republicans in the legislature who refused to an agreement that would have given election workers time to do that kind of pre-processing. So it's not that like the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania or some local election office is just like sitting around causing this delay. They were unable to open these envelopes until 7 a.m. on November 3rd. And that's why it's taking a long time to count because there are millions of ballots coming into places like Philadelphia and Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is. Nate, you mentioned that the role of the state legislature, Emily mentioned it again, like what, how likely, how feasible is it for the state legislature of Pennsylvania to sort of say, oh yeah, we don't like the results of this popular vote. Uh, We find problems in it. So we're going to, we're going to just appoint our own slate of electors. Is that, is that a, is that a trivial thing for them to do? Uh, No, not only is it not, not (laughs) trivial. I mean, that would be a major move, um, which is something that hasn't happened in 150 years. Uh, The 1876 election was the one where, you know, we had competing slates of electors coming from states. And so it's, it's, yeah, it would be a dramatic thing for them to do. Um, And we don't, actually know how the system will handle competing slates of electors, where, for example, you have a governor and or a Supreme Court from one state certifying one slate of electors, the legislature certifying another. Um, there's There are um, presumptions that are created in federal statute as to which um, electors should be the presumptive slate um, when Congress makes that consideration on, on or potentially debates competing slates of electors starting on January 6th. But that would be a dramatic move. And you would expect that there'd be U.S. Supreme Court involvement before and after that to deal with the question as to what is the legitimate slate of electors. I mean, it's a relic that the state legislators still have that power in the Constitution. It's back from when people also didn't directly elect their senators. And we changed that in the Constitution and left this in place. I mean, I think of it as like an appendix, a kind of vestigial organ that's still sitting there. And you know, to take away from the voters the right to directly elect the president. Like, that is something we have essentially taken for granted for much more than a century, and it's an incredibly important part of American democracy. It would be a huge, um, huge upheaval to to change that. And I think because the election went so smoothly and the counting seems to be going fine, there's it's just really hard to contemplate why there would be any kind of reason for that right now. Can I also just add, add something there, which is that uh, we shouldn't assume that the the Constitution says that the legislature can just decide to appoint electors. They determine the manner of appointing electors. And, and that's a subtle but important difference because given the way the federal law is, is crafted, you know, they have determined a manner already as to how the electors are going to be appointed. That was the election by the voters, right? And then what would happen here that's being posited is that they would take back or change the manner of appointing electors after it has already been specified. And that actually has implications for um, the Electoral Count Act, which says that if the procedures were in place before the election, then the presumptive slate of electors would be the one that had been determined according to those procedures. So is that is your point that um, it would legally be harder to because you're not just changing the electors, you're changing the procedure for creating the electors, which seems like a much more complicated thing to do and would seem to be more obviously politically motivated. And you'd have to make a case for why you're changing the way you elect, uh, create for why you're changing the procedures to create electors. Does that create a higher uh, legal hurdle for that kind of funny business? 
Well, yes. I mean, it certainly creates a, a higher legal hurdle, but it also is presumptively invalid under federal law is what I'm yeah. trying to argue here. And so that if you end up doing that, then th basically there's a directive to Congress that the valid slate of electors is the one that was chosen according to procedures that were in place before the election. Got it. Can I just piggyback then another question? Nate, uh, you and I talked about Maricopa County the last time we were together. Um, obviously, everybody's watching Arizona and that county. You got any insight into what's happening, uh, what's happening there at this last minute? You know, it's funny. I remember when we spoke about this and I said, yeah, you know, Arizona says they're going to take some time. And then all, all, all media indications were, no, 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 they, they might be able to get it done earlier because they were they were pre-processing earlier. Now, and including from people like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, look, I, don't, I have no insight into what's actually happening in um, the canvassing boards and the like. Um, they have a lot of mail ballots, as was predicted. Uh, and so, you know, right now, what I'm paying attention to is, you know, where those mail ballots are coming from and how it's leading to changes in the, the count. And, and let me emphasize this just from a kind of practical perspective. If you talk to the lawyers who were involved in Bush versus Gore, the most important uh, factor they said throughout the litigation was looking at the TV screens and the number of votes that was in the bottom right-hand portion of that screen as to how many votes Bush was ahead. And so once these votes are counted and once we have a good sense of who the winner is in each state, the presumptive victor in the Electoral College has a, a not just a public relations advantage, but also a legal advantage because the candidate that's trying to take that the, the winner down has a very high uh, hill to climb. Yeah. Nate, when you look at the legal themes that are emerging, and, and if you don't want to speculate on this, don't speculate. But what do you think might be appealing to a conservative Supreme Court that I don't think really wants to uh, delegitimize itself? I think it's a court that would really prefer not to, at this moment, not to have to overturn an election result if they if they don't have to. So are there legal arguments you think that look like they might, however, be Trump Trumpian legal arguments that look like they might be enticing to this court. So it's important to understand that in order to get to the U.S. Supreme Court, you have to have some kind of argument under the U.S. Constitution or federal law, right? And so although the situation this time is so different than it was in Florida, the sort of range of arguments when it comes to presidential elections, sort of constitutional arguments are quite limited. And so those two types of arguments are first equal protection, that something is happening where some voters are being treated differently than other voters, either in the processes that were in place before the election or during the counting process or during the curing of the ballot process. Uh, so, so that someone's being discriminated against, right? And the second is that the local officials or the state officials did not follow the state law. And this is what we call the independent state legislature doctrine under that provision, which says that the legislature has the uh, power to determine the manner of appointing electors. What, what that, la that second category of cases uh, captures those that have already gone to the Supreme Court this cycle, most notably out of Pennsylvania, which ended in a 4-4 tie. And so now, we, you know, you, you couldn't have scripted this, right? You now have uh, the, the question as to whether Amy Coney Barrett, in one of her first cases, might actually break that tie in one way or the, the other. 
I think it's also just worth pointing out that litigation Nate was just talking about is about whether Pennsylvania is permitted to count ballots coming in between November 4th and November 6th. So ballots that were postmarked on Election Day, but arriving late, there have been delays at the post office. Those ballots, like we have no idea how many there are of those ballots. It could be a small number. It could not affect the total. Those are just facts we don't know yet. But this is, a, a, again, a category of arguments, right? So the argument that local officials or state officials have gone beyond what is prescribed in the state code on elections that was sanctioned by the legislature, that is a way to try to get the Supreme Court or federal court to start considering what are sort of quintessentially state law issues, but to do it through a federal lens and say, well, these other officials, right, have gone beyond what the legislature sanctions, and that creates a federal cause of action. Whether it's with respect to um, the late arriving ballots, or whether it's with respect to, as, as has been argued in Pennsylvania, the way they allowed curing of ballots, curing meaning the correcting of errors uh, that, that voters may have made in the absentee ballots. All of this is just by way of saying what, what should be an issue that should stop at the state Supreme Court could go on if you say, well, no, what the local officials were doing was beyond the, the, what's provided for in the state statute. Right. I mean, what's a really big deal here is that it was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court interpreting the Pennsylvania Constitution that said ballots could come in between November 4th and 6th and still be counted. And there are all kinds of state court decisions about election law. Like that has been a traditional part of how we interpret statutes and uh, deal with disputes. And so this idea that um, there's this independent power of the state legislature that no other body in the state can question is radical. Well, it's radical, but it got three votes in Bush versus Gore itself. And it is, it's quite clear that there are four justices on the Supreme Court. And I actually think even five with Chief Justice Roberts, who believes that. The reason I think Chief Justice Roberts uh, believes that is that he had an opinion two years ago in this Arizona redistricting case in a very analogous issue where he at least voiced that concern. And so there's a majority on the court that wants to revive the, th this doctrine or even create this doctrine. The question is, how would it apply in a particular case? Chief Justice Roberts did not think it would apply in the case of the Pennsylvania uh, extension of the deadline. The last question is a federalism question, which is, Nate, would you um, compare the arguments being made for the beauties and benefits of federalism in the pandemic case, which is basically we don't need a big federal response. We need each state to make its bit to behave and make its rules and its procedures and how that may conflict with this argument being made by the same people for um, interfering in the state process of counting ballots. Yes. Well, when it comes to elections, sort of counts and recounts, there there is not uh, a lot of consistency with other areas of law. I mean, it sort of depends on where your candidate is, uh, and then you make <laughs> the arguments that are more favorable. And and frankly, in Bush versus Gore itself, Chief Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who otherwise is one of the big champions of states' rights, explains why. Um, well, because the Constitution has this special provision vesting power in state legislatures, that actually this is an exception to the general all states' rights, uh, federalism arguments that a lot of conservatives make. Nate, personally, thanks for joining us. Nate is, of course, a professor of law at Stanford University. Thanks so much. Slate Plus members, you receive bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts and all sorts of other member benefits for being a member at Slate Plus, and you get to support the excellent journalism that Slate 
did in the election run-up and will continue to do during this tumultuous period before inauguration and during whatever the next presidency is. On today's Slate Plus segment, we're talking about stories that that we hope will distract us in the coming years, uh, that we've been so immersed in this election and the Trump presidency that it's it's taken away some of the stupid, joyful things that we can get out of out of media and out of uh, the stories around us. So we're, we're going to talk about the stories we want to be distracted by in the coming years. If you want to become a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and join. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So as we're taping, it is not clear whether Joe Biden has won the presidency or not. It is pretty clear that it was not a glorious night for Democrats generally. They went into this election with huge anticipation about recapturing the Senate, about expanding a House majority, about flipping state legislatures in a, a bunch of different states, and none of those down-ballot things came to pass. Uh, they will gain one seat in the Senate, probably, meaning Republicans will maintain their solid control. They will lose House seats. The Texas State State House, they did not make any gains at all. They also didn't gain in North Carolina and Iowa, which were state houses they hoped to to flip. They think they flipped the Arizona House and Senate, but even that seems in doubt at this moment. Um, and there are also things like redistricting just got a little bit more partisan and more favorable to Republicans in a state like Missouri. So, John, as you look out at the at the array of races and the array of things that were were settled on election night <laughs> why why or not settled i guess why is it that that democrats did so much worse than they hoped do you have a sense about why that well, might be i guess i have some preliminary senses but i'm really nervous about big conclusions because one a couple of things one the 
exit polls that usually cause me to make all kinds of really sweeping claims about um, how certain vo- voting gr- groups voted and are uh, there are funny things in them that I don't. Um, one funny thing, for example, is Joe Biden won independence by, I think, 15 or 17 points. Trump won independence in 2016. They were 28% of the election. They were 31% of the election in 2016. With a number that big at the national level, Biden should be doing better than he is in the actual vote counts. He also did better with white college-educated women and other groups that um, that just would make me feel like it shouldn't be as close. Now, Trump Trump did well with his base, and he expanded his base, and we can talk about all that later. But anyway, I guess my first point is the extrapolation from the exit polls that tell you about whether they did or didn't make the right pitch to certain kinds of voters um, makes me nervous. Clearly, there is something happening with Latino voters that is, um, you know, Donald Trump made inroads there. Republicans made inroads with Latino voters. There were specific areas, in particular Miami-Dade, in Florida is an amazing case where Hillary Clinton won it by 29 points. I think Biden only won it by eight. That's the the heart of his coalition in Florida. Um, and Trump basically found a way to take that away from him. And so that's a specific thing. You don't need to look at the exit polls. So I, anyway, that's a huge uh, warning. But I guess my bigger question is whether Democrats, I mean, they clearly failed in some of the Senate races where, I mean, certainly against Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, they sent, spent millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And basically it did nothing. The polls were off in races in North Carolina and Maine where they had the Democrat way up. In Maine, it wasn't really even close. I don't think Susan Collins was ever ahead in a poll. I know that's not a single one. Not a single yeah. one. Right. Yeah. Not a single one. And so, so, but here's the thing. It wasn't just public pollsters. It was, it was party pollsters too. So, so obviously they misread the electorate, but polling's hard. So is it that Democrats just got, you know, is about basically both sides turned out their their elect- their voters and the, the Republicans turned out more than everybody thought. So that's not so much of a weakness in the Democrats. It's a strength in the Republicans. But I think that and that's the, where I'm going to shut up at the end here is whatever happened, whoever is elected, Donald Trump won, uh, which is to say that he has not only totally changed the Republican Party, which he had done before, but there was an argument that he had changed the party, but he turned it into a withered carrot that was going to get demolished everywhere. He has he has turned it into a party that has a lot of support in the country. And that was one of the things we saw. And that's one of the things that may have affected those down ballot races. And so and that's one of the things that that both parties have to wrestle with. So can I ask a technical question? Do the exit polls include the vote by mail vote, which was so much more heavily? Okay, they do. They and they also get a comb run through them both all night long and um, and then subsequent to the election. And Pew, uh, the Pew Research Center will help us all here in the end by doing an even more thorough assessment of the exit polls, uh, exit polls and the people who did the electing. Um, and and um, AP already has started doing some of that. And so you see some disparities. The AP canvas of voters suggests, for example, that the coronavirus was the number one issue by far and away. The um, Edison Research ex- exit polls it wasn't that big of a uh, of a deal. So that's just another one of the kinds of discrepancies that makes life um, difficult. So to Emily, John makes this point, which is that Trumpism survives even whether or not Trump is president. What does that mean? I mean, is it a style that survives? Is it a set of issues that survives? Is it an attitude towards 
your political opponent that survives? Is it a hatred of, you know, some actual politics? It's not clear to me. I mean, it is clear that we went four years with this, to me, atrocious president and nothing really changed in the electorate. More people came out and vote, but the but the division in the country is roughly the same as it was four years ago. M- millions of people were not moved off their position. They weren't, nothing shifted them despite these incredible, tumultuous and in some ways calamitous events. Well, wait, um, some people so, shifted. I mean, that independent vote that John was talking about, like really shifted. Well, so- but, but, you know, Here- we have, we have Biden winning, you know, he will win a few million more votes than Donald Trump. Both of them will get a lot more votes than they did. than the, 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 then Hillary Biden will get a lot more votes than Hillary Clinton did. Trump will get a lot more votes than he did. The, the kind of the the split in the country doesn't seem to have shifted that much. Right. I mean, if you wanted this election to be a reckoning and a huge repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, it, it was not. I feel like, though, it's a mistake to turn this into how do Democrats fail and to say that Trump won. Like, first of all, I'm just such a literalist. Like, if he didn't win, then he didn't win. And I totally understand that Trumpism survived and is surviving and is important to understand what that appeal is. But also... A year ago, Democrats thought they had very little chance of retaking the Senate. And I think were it not for various well, they, they did. errors. They did. What? They didn't retake the Senate. I know, but I'm saying that that was like completely in line with expectations. Like expectations rose because of the response to the coronavirus and you know, the huge outpouring of support for racial justice over the summer. I think there was this sense on the left that that was widely shared. And there were some polls that suggested that that was true, that the majority of people thought that the lockdowns for the coronavirus were justified, you know, the support for Black Lives Matter grew. But I think either people didn't vote on those issues, or those views turned out to be more complicated than we thought, which seems totally unsurprising to me in a sense. I mean, I guess what I think about what Trump has accomplished is he has made politics stickier, more like a religion, more like a tribe, more like your identity. And once you turn it into a marker of identity, people are going to be much less likely to switch, right? I mean, the same way that like, in my family, it's a religion in my Philadelphia family to root for Philadelphia sports teams, like it takes a lot to detach people. Once you make it that kind of form of identity, you stop thinking necessarily about, you know, policy choices in the same kind of way. I think you can have both things happen. So there was a shift in independent, if we if we were to believe the exit polls, and I think you can believe them when there's this big of a shift. In other words, the shift may not have been colossal, but it was big. There, were, there was certainly a shift in the electorate between independence, which is a bit squishy because you can call yourself an independent, and therefore, unlike um, age or gender or location, it's, well, I guess you can move locations, but age or gender, you can't shift those. So it's squishy to talk about independence, but nevertheless... People who like to think of themselves as independents um, had this massive shift towards Biden. White women with college educations, massive shift towards Biden from Clinton. So those shifts definitely did happen in the electorate. And they people were um, and there were Republicans who fled Donald Trump. There just were other shifts too. Latinos moved to Trump in a way up from 2016 and lots of white working class voters. He, he did even better with them than before. So I think we need to look at it as both shift and amplification of of bases. I think we're in agreement, Emily, which is that 
you know, Democrats can have turned out their base, but Donald Trump turned out his. And I think it was while there may have been heightened expectations as a result of the coronavirus and the president's approval rating and the bad economy that might have made de- Democrats have too high expectations. It was it was not a separate category, though, was people who thought, well, the president's just a disaster and he's not going to, you know, voters are going to flee from him. I mean, people have thought that for a much longer time. Um, they thought that the, the Trump base was just this kind of 30 percent group of people, that it wasn't any bigger than that. That was a longer term thought than maybe the, the sugar high people had right before the election. Yeah, what, totally. What, what is this is what I want to get at. What is this this Trump is the Trump base? What is it that is animating? Because it doesn't. Like I just don't, I don't quite understand it. What do you not understand? I understand. Like, seems- I understand the cultural. I understand the. There's sort of a the cultural conservatives have uh, laid themselves down with Trump, even though he himself is, you know, has such revolting personal qualities and is would be anathema to them personally. Like I understand that they've done that around sort of cultural conservative issues. You know, that's a significant fraction of his base. But all these other people, like, what is it? What is it that causes millions of African-Americans and millions of people who were identified by pollsters as Latino to move towards Trump? What is the, What is the thing in Trumpism? Is it him? Is it a, is it a stance towards politics? Is it actual? It doesn't feel to me like it's actual issues. But maybe I'm well, wrong. Well, can it be multifaceted? So if you're a regular old Republican, you love him on issues, defense. Uh, he's highly pro-life, judges, taxes, regulations. He's like he's the most he's a incredibly effective Republican president. So that's one group. The other, it's cultural. Don't you know, don't make me wear a damn mask. Uh, the other is rural versus city or sort of anti-elitist. Um, the other is um perhaps the chaos voter and the other is hey he was doing well on the economy he's a businessman i i uh you know we're gonna get back to that again and i I don't blame him for the coronavirus it wasn't his fault it came from china and if you're paying attention like hey look europe's having a lot of trouble too i mean i'm really the last person who should be answering this question um but just based on interviews and i that i've done and i guess reading Don't you think there's something fundamentally appealing about someone who says to you, the country's great, the country's fine, you're fine. Like, you don't have to think about all these complex issues. You don't have to feel bad about yourself and guilty. I don't know what structural racism is. I don't care. Like, as long as you're not using the N-word and discriminating against people in your heart, you don't have to pay attention to all this stuff. Just go live your life. He he doesn't say the country's great. He's always saying how terrible it is. No, but he's also talking about making it great. He does both at the same time, right? He's basically saying, he's saying about American history, like, you should feel great about this. Ignore all of these people who are telling you that, you know, we have all these like all this to atone for. I don't I mean, there's something appealing about that message. I don't it's not appealing to me, but I can see, especially if you lived in a place where you feel like your family, your community is healthy and vibrant and you're contributing to it. Do you do you think, Emily, that this that actually the BLM movement, the this kind of sense of reckoning with an American history, that was a winning issue for him? Sounds like you do. 
I really don't know. I mean, I'm just like spitballing anecdotally. I don't have data showing me that like that is a major theme. But when you think of the appeal of owning the libs and the disaffection that people have, I mean, John used the word anti-elitist. I think that's totally true. And there are all these ways in which, you know, liberal culture, whether it's like from Hollywood or universities, sort of Silicon Valley, like it is mostly dominated by liberals. It does have a set of assumptions that doesn't make sense to a lot of Americans. And well, the important point that Emily's making that we need to can't stress enough is that that she's not describing every single solitary Trump voter. She's talking about uh, a portion of the appeal, which I think is incredibly real. And just to complicate the issue in an interesting way, I think another portion of his coalition, and now we're talking about the sort of the motivations that make up his coalition, is the people who told the Gallup poll, the 56% of the people in Gallup who said their life was better off than it used to be. That should be a great number for a president. And so some portion of that is his part of his vote is people who think, you know, things are better. And that's all I vote on. Final point is with the caveat about the uh, the exit polls. When people were asked their opinion of Black Lives Matter, it had a 57, 36 favorable, uh, unfavorable. So that's a 21 point favorable rating for Black Lives Matter, which is basically where it was in the polls. Again, caveats apply when it was at its best. So that seems to have, uh, if you believe the exit polls, people still have a very favorable view of the Black Lives Matter movement. Can I say one more thing about this? You know, when Biden was talking in the second debate, he several times emphasized, like, you're in your kitchen, things aren't going that well, maybe you can't pay the bills, maybe you don't have health insurance. Like, he was appealing to an America in which, like, people are really struggling. And for sure, there are a lot of people really struggling, and we should care about them. Like, I care a lot about that. But I also wondered if for people for whom that's not true, that feels like they're sort of being excluded. And again, like, they're being made to feel guilty because they're not putting other people first. Like, if you think of voting as a matter of self-interest, then cultural self-interest can matter a lot. Yeah, that may, that's a really good point, Emily. I think there's this assumption that, oh, the pandemic has been so disruptive and has been so costly economically to so many people. But maybe it wasn't so costly economically to the people who were inclined to vote for President Trump. And, and, and the talking about it and talking about it in that way irritated them or motivated them to vote in his favor more. And, and I think— Plenty of and people, certainly not to hold him responsible for whatever the economic damage was. Yes. And I think plenty of people also think that the country overreacted. They're ready the, to yeah. go out again. They think that he's right that it doesn't kill that many people. And they just feel grumbly about all the restrictions and like, how long can it really go on for? I mean, I definitely hear that from people I, around me. One of the things that has surprised me, I guess, since maybe the first Obama uh, presidency is the way in which the left has all these issues that really, when you dig down into it around economic security, around, around health care, around the, the safety net, that Americans are very much support what Democrats and progressives want to do. People don't want to go bankrupt because of medical bills. They don't want to lose their health insurance because they have a pre-existing condition. They, you know, if they lose their job, they they do want there to be some kind of unemployment insurance available for them. They would like college tuition, those people who are sending kids to college, to be lower than it is. And Democrats have continued to not do a particularly good job about making those issues feel central and urgent to people voting. I continue to be surprised at how 
little movement on these policy issues there's been given how much they actually matter to people. Not to mention climate change. For me, this is crystallized in the fact that Florida voted over more than 60% to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour while they elected Donald Trump. So that seems mystifying, except, I mean... Raising the minimum wage came up once in the second presidential debate. It was not a theme of Biden's campaign. If you're just sort of listening, tuning in and out, you might be much more likely to get irritated by something that seems like overwoke to you or by what you see as like nanny state coronavirus reaction as you might be to get inspired by free college and raising the minimum wage. So as mentioned a few minutes ago, Susan Collins did not lead in a single poll in Maine in her Senate reelection race, and she won it pretty easily. Biden was up by double digits in some Wisconsin polling and much Wisconsin polling, and it looks like he's going to win by by one vote. Uh <laughs> 20,000 votes, I believe. Yeah, actually. I mean, it's like it's it's narrow, though. It's narrow. Yeah. Uh, similarly, in Michigan, in Florida, he was it was uh, tight and he will end up losing it by six or seven. So we see that there was a bias in the polls that was favoring Biden that was not reflected in how people ended up voting. John, I'm sure you've you've had to think about this more than Emily and I have in the past few days. After the 2016 election, there was this tremendous sort of reckoning about this, the sense that polls had been wrong and, and and pollsters went out to correct it and to sample more non-college educated white voters in particular to make sure that that was being reflected, that they were balancing for education better. And yet it looks like if there was an error in 2016, the, the error is even worse in 2020. Any thoughts on like how we should how we should start to think about this well before we knew about polling misses that helped democrats there were polling misses that helped republicans so in 2012 there was a lot of um concern about republican polling bias like in gallup for example uh, that there was a consistent bias towards republicans and um so the thing to question or the wonder is whether there's always a polling miss and they're just different kinds of misses and there is no particular bias to the miss or whether there's an ideological bias to the miss. That's one set of questions. The second is whether there's a particular kind of miss when it comes to Donald Trump. And then the third thing is there are always misses because stuff changes. So, for example, my view that was informed by lots of scholarship on the power and importance of debates, I think is is evolving, must evolve for maybe two idiosyncratic reasons, or one idiosyncratic reason and another one is structural. One is Donald Trump is you know, operates outside of the normal behavioral patterns. And therefore, his debate performance was just so out of control that it had an effect, whereas normally candidates never vary that far from the median. And therefore, you know, they don't have an, they don't play a role. I think Donald Trump's uh, debate performance did play a role. Secondly, because of early voting, it played a role because people could vote right after it. So they could take an opinion about Donald Trump, say, I'm done with him, lock in the vote, and that's it. So I guess my point is, views that we have about voter behaviors and patterns are always changing based on the circumstances. And so we need to be alive to that. And then the question is, but but here you really had polling that was messed up all up and down the, the line. So in other words, not just not just media, but also the individual races. And they got it, you know, they got it wrong in more places, 
and in different ways. So, for example, in Arizona, I think the actual average was about two, two and a half points, which if you think of the margin of error, you're, you're okay there with what's ultimately going to probably happen in Arizona. Not so true in Florida, where Biden was, I think the average, he was up two and a half. Uh, and I don't know how many points he'll lose Florida and Dubai now, but he will have lost them. So was there really a, sh- a shy Trump voter? Did people misunderstand the inroads that Trump had made in the Latino community in Dade County? I think we're going to have to figure that all out. But the miss, and we'll have to see what the final result is, too. And it's, it doesn't appear that it has to do with people not saying they want to support Trump, because the whatever the polling error was, was the same polling error for Senate candidates and House candidates, uh, Republicans generally. So it's not that, oh, I don't want to say that I'm supporting Trump. And that's why Trump looks to be polling low. It's that the people who they just missed a ton of people who were going to vote Republican. Well, didn't they try to correct for the error that they didn't wait for education enough in 2016? And people thought that was going to fix the problem. And then it turns out it is not. I mean, if you have polls in close states that miss by four or five points, they're effectively useless as and if you have polling averages and then probability models based on those averages, then it's really hard to see how this is introducing some kind of rigor, even though it has, you know, been hugely had a huge impact on political journalism and on how we all talk about these races. So one theory of this, which I think comes from David Shore, the data analyst, is that People are much less likely to answer, to pick up the phone and answer the poll if they have low social trust. And so you just wind up with this unrepresentative sample of people. And even if they're Republicans, they're not like Trump voters. Um, It turns out the Democrats or people who support Democrats are more likely to have social trust. And I feel like if you combine that with the incredibly low response rate for simply answering your phone, as we shift to cell phones and even on landlines, it's so much easier to screen calls. It just seems like, you know, if you're reaching two or three out of every hundred people you call, like maybe we just can't really do this anymore in an effective way. We need to have more ways of understanding the electorate because this one is just insufficient. Well, and also it has it has an actual effect, which is if you think about, say, the Jamie Harrison, Lindsey Graham race. Now, there are reasons that people put money into that race in general. Like people really, a lot of Democrats really wanted Lindsey Graham out. And the idea that 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 was within the realm of possibility, I think, inspired people to to over uh Overinvest in that, but if the polls had been accurate in that race, it would have been inc- it would have been crazy. Every dollar that people put into Jamie Harrison's campaign would have been better spent in Georgia. Every single penny of it, it like actually misleads the professionals and causes a a wrong allocation of resources, and probably probably ended up costing the Democrats a bunch of seats somehow. I mean, I think you have to be a little careful because otherwise you have a situation in which the only people who poll well are the people who look like traditional politicians, i.e. white men. And so then you never get the kind of investment in black candidates or in women you would otherwise want. But I mean, you're totally right about overinvestment no. in Jamie Harrison well, and the, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Well, no, but it would, have been, it would have said it would have said it would have said South Carolina is like an incredibly hard state for a Democrat to win. It's just like really, really yes. hard. Yeah, although that because it's the the balance, the the partisan balance in that state is really off. It's going to take something incredibly difficult to change that. Georgia, less so because Georgia, the demographics of Georgia are different. So let's put money on in the Warnock race 
in the Ossoff race and in Cal Cunningham, because those are states which are which are more accessible. And let's not get taken by this mirage that that a poll can give us. Right. I mean, also, when you bring up Georgia, it, I just I have to bring in all the painstaking work of registering to vote people of color across that state that Stacey Abrams did before yep. she ran for governor that she has continued to do. You know, disclosure, as usual, I know her from law school. But, you know, maybe also what you're talking about, David, is the difference between investing in this kind of on the ground work that is very incremental. And it's hard to see the gains from it right away. But if you don't do it, then you never change the whole, you know, complexion and set of possibilities yeah. of the electorate. Yeah, but that's a good also, framing. Emily. Also, people were going to do crazy stuff regardless of the polls. I mean, Mitch McConnell was never really in danger and a boatload of money went into that state. So it's not just the polls that are motivating a lot of the money that goes into these into these races. Um, and there was so much Democratic money, too, that um, I don't know that you can put all this on the pollsters. But I think the most important point is the one that c- carries over from the last discussion we were having, which is what kind of a country are we and we can obviously we want to have a conversation about what kind of country we want to be and therefore public opinion and the way people feel are irrelevant. Um, but the only way you can find a way to get people to change their behavior is have some understanding of where they start from. And, um, you know, lots and lots of presidents have tried through one way or another. Lincoln used to just walk the streets. FDR sent his wife out into the country because it was harder for him to travel to get some idea where the country was. And how do you do that if the main mechanism, which is your polls, are giving you a a bad view of the country? And I don't mean that just for presidents. I mean that for all of us. Because, again, who cares what the country thinks on some level? But on the other hand, you have to know where the country thinks, what the country thinks in order to make change uh, sometimes. True. I mean, the other thing is we are talking about probably record turnout in this election, somewhere between 66 percent and maybe 68 or 69 percent of eligible voters voted. But that's still only two thirds. Like that is going to be the highest since 1900. And think of that, like one third of American adults are still disengaged. So, you know, when people talk about changing the shape of the electorate, it's really hard to get those people to decide they want to vote regularly. But there there are so many of them. And polling is a clever marker, a clever way to keep people's attention. And I'm not sure what you would put in its place because it is just as misleading to do anecdotal reporting where you go and talk to a Trump voter or a, a, you know, a, a Democratic voter uh, and use that one person to signal something socially significant. That isn't any more accurate, less accurate. Right, but deeper reporting, like if we were investing more in local news, like, huh, I know this guy was starting this podcast operation to do more local news. Like that, you know, then you could have much more real insight. I mean, maybe what we're also talking about is that we've valorized and overemphasized polling right Right. as we're, um, you know, impoverishing this other way of understanding communities and politics. And actually there was an interesting, I saw an interesting thread on Twitter about this, Emily, which is someone was saying, I would like to look at sort of how people voted and then look at news deserts and see if there's any correspondence between places where established uh, good sources of local journalism have vanished and and whether there are any voting patterns that can be discerned. And I bet there are. I bet you would see both low, less voting in places where where media has vanished and also just higher levels of social mistrust, which I would think would 
to per your point earlier, would correspond to voting that is more conservative. And also maybe missed shifts in the electorate, right? Like how much and right, shift, how yes. much reporting yeah, was there yeah. on this um counties in southern Texas along the Rio Grande that in the Rio Grande Valley where there was a big shift of Latino voters from Clinton to Trump took me aback. I don't know anything about that part of the country. Maybe it's been well covered, but I kind of doubt it. And now I really want to read all about it. So I have four quick points. David, your point about getting people interested in a race through polling is true. Of course, that's the big problem. You know, I mean, we get people interested in races by talking about the totally superficial. So it's probably on us a little bit still to stop thinking, you know, to stop being addicted to polls and maybe think about things that are more important in the races. But um, the other thing is Ann Seltzer, who does, does the polling for Iowa, was dead on. So there is some benefit to people who can just do it right. And the final thing is obviously social science research is important for knowing deeper things about the country. It's the kind of cotton candy polls that are the problem, not probably all polling. Let's go to cocktail chatter uh, when you're having a cotton candy martini, which I think is a true real drink. <gasps> That's um, shocking. What will you be chattering about? Um, I don't have a chatter. I've been too um, focused on the election. So I'm going to take a pass this week. Like, all right, here, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. John, what's your favorite 12-second fact that you know about uh, President Woodrow, no, President William Howard Taft? Um, that his, um, one of his best friends in the world uh, died, and his personal security agent died on the Titanic, and it, um, it devastated him. It really, he was like, he was completely undone by, um, by his death. That was awesome. What Saving a great chatter. The day. What a great chatter. Emily, what is your chatter? My world has been knit back together. I am watching a Supreme Court case that came before the court for argument this week. Um, it's called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia has a rule that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of sexual orientation. It had a contract to screen eligible foster parents with Catholic social services. And it turned out that this agency didn't want to accept LGBTQ people as potential foster parents. So the city terminated the contract. And the um, Catholic agency has sued to say that their freedom of religion is being infringed on here. So this is a case that directly tees up anti-discrimination law against religious liberty. There is a big precedent from 1990 written by Justice Antonin Scalia called Employment Division versus Smith, which says that if you are a government entity and you have a neutral law that you're generally applying to everybody, and it happens to have the effect of infringing on freedom of exercise of religion, that's permitted. So this case seems to fly directly in the face of this major precedent. The conservative majority on the court seemed very hostile to the city of Philadelphia's arguments, very solicitous of the Catholic social services. And the question will be how broad the ruling is. Um, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to think that because the city had lots of other agencies it, con it had contracts with that were accepting LGBTQ potential foster parents, that it would be okay to give a sort of religious liberty carve out to Catholic social services. We'll see if that holds or not as um, the kind of narrow version of this opinion. So it's a, a one of the major cases to watch. And it was one of the first times that Justice Barrett has been on the court. She asked some kind of fairly neutral hypotheticals. Um, so it wasn't really clear where she'll land. I, when you began that chatter, Emily, you said 
I'm watching, and I was like, great, I'm going to hear about a new Netflix show that Emily's <laughs> watching. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, and then you were like, oh, my God. I'm so glad I don't have to talk to her all the time. Uh, but you did. You, but we, you do, we t- actually. We do, I do to to hug you all the time, and also you often tell me the Netflix shows you're watching, so that's helpful. My chatter, it, I was. It, this is almost a Dickersonian chatter, which is that I, too, have been just so consumed, of course, as we all are. And then I was thinking, like, well, well, what had brought me pleasure this week? And I realized there was something that had brought me a great deal of pleasure this week. And that is Benton's Bacon. Oh. And I just want to chatter briefly about Benton's Bacon, which apparently is familiar to John Dickerson. Uh, so Benton's Bacon is a fantastic bacon that you can get in various gourmet food stores around the country. It is from Tennessee. It is hickory smoked. It is really thick. It is incredibly smoky. And it cooks perfectly. It just it, every other bacon I've ever cooked with is is a piker compared to Benton's bacon. Benton's bacon. There's a really good video on Eater about how they make it. If you want to spend 12 minutes learning about how bacon is made, lots of really kind of gnarly close-ups of uh, pork belly, but whatever. Uh, anyway, Benton's bacon couldn't recommend it more highly. Are you a fan, John? Yes, well, given the roots of um, uh, of Tennessee, um, although you know, I feel like, and Anne would have to correct me here, um, as <laughs> one of the many ways in which I give her an op- opportunity to. I think we learned of Benton's bacon, kind of outside outside of of her being from Tennessee. Anyway, yes, we love it and have had it many times. And that video is, um, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's uh, very pleasing and beautifully shot. There were lots of listener chatters. We should have just not done our own chatters, except Emily, and had just done listener chatters. But uh, listeners, you continue to tweet great chatters to us at at SlateGabFest. Please keep them coming. They bring real pleasure. And I want to point to one which brought me real pleasure from Ionic, at Ionic Tonic. And it's a video that's on TwistedSifter.com, although it seems to be come from somewhere in the Czech Republic about how bridges were constructed in 14th century Prague. And there's an iconic bridge in Prague called the Charles Bridge, constructed in 1357. And it's this animation about how you do it. And if you are interested in how things are built, like a David McCauley book or a Kate Asher book, uh, this is a fantastic animation of a bridge being built. So check it out. And it's only, it's like three or four minutes long. It's great. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth, June Thomas, Alicia Montgomery. They have three titanic, powerful jobs running Slate Podcasts. You can figure out what they are, but they're all really important. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week. Please tweet chatter to us at, at @slategabfest. Maybe there will be uh, more clarity about who our next president will be by then. Let, let us, us hope so. Let us hope so. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. We're all feeling it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sleeping pills the last two nights, my friend. Yeah. Uh, so. Slate Plus, we thought, um, you know, the last four years have been really consumed by President Trump. Uh, and 
the, the a real mania around President Trump, around what he does, around his behavior, around the scandals around him, around his provocations. And it may be he may be reelected and there may be four more years of this or he may not be reelected and Joe Biden may be president. And it's pretty clear that Joe Biden is a more boring, likely to be a more boring, low profile president. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is how much I miss all the kind of non-presidential, sort of salacious, scandalous, trivial, stupid things that we used to focus on uh, back before Trump. So what you think about uh, things like the balloon boy scandal, where that parents pretended they'd send their kid up in a in in a balloon, and, and that hadn't really happened, or that their kid had been taken away in a balloon or the that blue the blue gold dress is the dress blue or not that one or even like the bernie madoff scandal which was you know like really devastating for lots of people but had this quality of like wow that is amazing and mesmerizing to follow so i wanted us to talk about what what it is we want to get back to what trivial stupid things would we like to pay attention to in the coming years that we haven't paid attention to because we've been listening to trump Emily, you got any? <laughs> so I am going to unveil myself as a small-minded and petty and go right for the schadenfreude. So I like gossip as much as the next person, probably more, I would say, sheepishly. I'm not super interested in celebrity gossip because I don't know those people. And I just, I don't follow enough of their storylines usually to care. But I am deeply interested in kind of C-list celebrity gossip <laughs> about people who I either know or I'm really curious about. And so my example of this, this week and last week was this story about niche sports in the Atlantic by Ruth Shalit Barrett. So this story has been retracted by the Atlantic. But um, my <laughs> course of events was that uh, it's a story that is very damning about the culture of youth sports in Fairfield County in Southern Connecticut, where I do not live. And it's a place that uh, has lots of very wealthy people in it. Shalit Barrett is this journalist from what I think of as like my start in journalism. She was this totally hot magazine journalist, like hot in the sense of everyone wanted to hire her when she was 23 or 24, which was right around when I was 23 and 24 and was like out <laughs> in Nowheresville as a local newspaper journalist. And I was so envious of her. And then she was toppled because of plagiarism at the New Republic, mostly like went away. I haven't thought about her a really long time. I read the story in The Atlantic. I thought it was so juicy. I also thought, like, could this really be true? It just had a bunch of facts in it that just seemed like they were too good to be true. And the byline on it was Ruth S. Barrett. So I was kind of curious about who she might be. Then I forgot about it. Turns out this is Ruth Shalit come back um, with this big new assignment. And then the story was, in fact, too good to be true and has completely, I, in my view, fallen apart, um, has all kinds of problems in it, some of which The Atlantic acknowledged in a very lengthy editor's note, but some of which are still, I think, just in the form of these, for me, um, extremely interesting columns that Eric Wemple of the Washington Post has written. And I think our Slate colleagues, Stefan Fatsis and Josh Levine, kind of played a role in this on their Hang Up and Listen show, which actually I have like saved to listen to. So I'm, I confess that is the kind of story I will be very happy to indulge in more of. Yeah, I, Ruth, I knew Ruth pretty well back in the day because Hannah, my 
X was her close colleague at the New Republic. And yeah, it was it was Ruth and Steve Glass and Hanna were the three junior staff writers at the New Republic. And Steve and Ruth flamed out. Hanna, Hanna most affirmatively did not. But Ruth was always, it was just like, she was not I am fine with The Atlantic giving Ruth Shalit a second chance. I just can't believe how badly she blew it. Emily, I had exactly the same experience you did as a young journalist, which was editors would basically say, you know, either try to get Ruth to write at the Time magazine or or explicitly or implicitly wonder why I wasn't finding these amazing anecdotes that were in her pieces. And then the third thing is, when I read that, I had the exact same feeling you did, Emily. I was like, this is, it's the same feeling I had with that, with the Rolling Stone uh, piece that was totally made up about UVA. Um, I was like, this, human beings don't act like this. Like, this is a, I feel what feels more powerful than the anecdote of the human being is the human being behind it who is making the anecdote polished. And, and so it's so funny you had that, that reaction. So my understanding of what we were doing, the Slate Pop Plus topic, is slightly different than yours, Emily. So I actually was envisioning, what I was thinking about was, what are the stories that I want to be focusing on? And I was just imagining the kind of things that I hope, like, in the next couple of years, this will emerge and I will get to spend, we will all get to spend weeks marinating in it. So I, I had thought of three examples of this. So one is I want a really rich, famous person to turn out to be a pure con artist, like a person who is. <laughs> that Wait, that happens happen. all the time. I know. I love it. Every time it happens. Each You'd, one, just send them to David like little pearls. David, on David you would understand that many people think that's a description of the current president. Um, yeah, well, but he's 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 had tragic uh, consequential impact on my life. Or on the life of the country, I should say. I so wa- you want a frivolous I want a, billion, yeah. like a Kardashian? Oh yeah, I want to. I want to. But it, it be actually someone I've heard of, like you know that that uh, I'm trying to think who who would be the, a great example of this. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 